Hi friends. I'm currently in Virginia, Norfolk, the northeast of the United States, and I'm at an author's event. Two years ago, I came to the same event here, and I got to hear a speech from a guy called BT Urella. Now, BT is a wounded army vet. He's an author, and he's the founder of Vet Sports, which is an organization for wounded veterans to play a variety of different sports and also a community and support for them. And I got to hear this speech that he gave about his life when I was completely unprepared. I didn't know who he was. And I was blown away. I still, to this day, it moves me to think about what he said on that evening. And he only got 15 minutes of time at the beginning of this dinner. And anyway, I, um, I kept in touch with him over the next year and then we got to see each other at an event the year after and now two years hence we are here again back in Virginia at the same hotel where we first met actually and I knew two years ago I thought if I ever have the opportunity to broadcast something I want to get this story out there and lo and behold two years later I've got a podcast and I now have the opportunity to have one of my best mates in the US with this insane compelling story come on and talk so today here we are um, it's, it's absolutely insane, BT's life, from a messed up childhood to being hit with five IEDs in the space of a year while he was on tour in Iraq, to coming back to the US, losing a limb, starting a sports league, dealing with PTSD, and now becoming an author and cover model that's very, very well regarded in the USA. This story sounds like something that he's written in one of his books, but it's not. It's his actual life. So sit back and enjoy. BT Urella. BT, man. Yes. Thank you very much for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Chris. Absolutely. Um, it's probably been two years since I've wanted to get you to sit down and, and have a discussion. So, and here we are. Here we are in the same <laughs> in the same hotel on the same week. I know, right? Um, bit of poetic justice there, right? So yeah, I I got to hear you. Um, I turned up late. My luggage arrived a day late. I had to run upstairs and come downstairs to this black tie ball thing that we had two years ago here. And then kind of burst into the room and sat down as this guy got up and stood up and it was you and you were about to give this big speech and I was like totally unprepared, like wholly <laughs> unprepared. And I guess like, cause that was just after you'd done your TV thing as well, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. so I, your notoriety was probably riding moderately high and then being in this community of authors, everyone would have had an idea of what was gonna be said and then you just unloaded this story and I was like totally, you know, like you, someone racks a bar with weights that you don't know what it is. You step underneath it and you're like, oh my God, this yeah, is really fucking heavy. Yeah. No, 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 too much, too much. And uh, yeah, man, I got, I got blown away by that. Well, and the weird part was that at that part two years ago, you know, I had told my story with Vet Sports. I co-founded in 2012. So telling my story had become a thing over the years. But by that point within the community, it hadn't been a thing yet. You know, okay. people knew the basis of my story. They knew I was a combat wounded veteran and stuff like that, but they never knew 
the eccentricities of my entire life. And so that's what I wanted to do with that speech was just kind of lay it all out there mm -hmm. and then kind of just give them the whole narrative. Um, how, how different does it feel giving the speech to the industry that you're in now, which is authors versus the industry that you were in or that you, you're associated with, which is veterans? I, well, so that's actually different than what I usually do. I don't talk to a lot of veterans, unfortunately. I talk to veterans, but it's more c c conversationally. Got you. It's not giving them you know, a speech or whatever. Yeah. So the differences where I'm at is that speech was for my peers in the romance community, right? And mm -hmm. usually my other speeches are for businesses or clubs or groups or whatever. So mm -hmm. for me, it meant a lot more because obviously being a creative type, you are... You're used to, and you're. You make emotions your business. Yes, emotions are your business. You understand that. You understand pain and love and all these beautiful things. And so they, for me, being able to share my story in that room, the response I got back was so much better and greater than what I ever had before. You think people have got that depth of understanding? They have that depth. That exact perfect word for it: depth. That they, that compassion. They're just different people. We're wired differently as authors, as creative types. I and, agree. I and, agree. Uh, I mean, it sounds like hearing your story sounds like a work of fiction. Yeah, like for want of a better feels term, like it, bro. <laughs> feels like it. <laughs> you lived it. Serious. Um, so you know, can you take us from where do we start with your story? Where do we begin? I honestly don't even know. Uh, that's the weird part because I touched on everything with that speech. Um, I had a real fucked up childhood, real bad childhood, and a lot of abuse uh, of, of every variety. And so when I hit about 15, I, it was that point where I was like, I need to do something. I need to get the fuck out of here. I have to get out of here. Where was growing up? Where did you St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I was born and raised. Okay. And so I had a lot of uh, members of my family in the military. Um, I And I also attributed it to this as well, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, when I watched that movie at 14 and I saw what those men did on uh, D-Day, I was so profoundly moved by, by their strength that that was that point where I was like, I need to do that. You know, I, I felt I owed it to them. So at 18, I ended up joining the Army, Army Infantry, shipped off to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, went through basic training, graduated, went to Germany, trained up for a year, and then ended up in Iraq. What year is what this? What are we talking now? So 2004 was basic training, 2005 was Germany training up for Iraq, and then 2006 was Iraq. So you're right in the middle of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, 2006 was uh, the worst year in Iraq, actually. Uh, With, in terms of death. By what metric? Okay. By yeah. In terms of uh, KIA and then also wounded. Um, it Why? It was nonstop. Why? So, what happened with Iraq was we... It's kind of complicated, complicated but General... Um, hold on. Colin Powell. Yep. Said at the beginning of the Iraq War that we need to close off the borders. We need to close off the borders because what we're going to do is have a free-for-all. We're... In, invading Iraq, and if we do not protect these borders, you're going to have every swinging dick yep. from the Middle East coming in to fight Reinforcements. us. Reinforcements. Yep. Guess what happened? Almost everyone we killed or captured was not Iraqi, but from some other Middle Eastern country. That was around about. That came in. They're, they're like, hell yeah, they're bringing the fight to us, let's go. <laughs> it's like fucking Red Dawn, Middle Eastern style. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, they came in and it was just hell. I mean, it was absolute hell. And then you had Iran backing them with uh, weaponry. What I got hit with was called a EFP, Explosively Formed Projectile. Mm -hmm. And it was developed by Iran, very basic uh, mechanically, but very, very, like... Incredibly effective. Incredibly So effective. let's roll it back. So you've gone through your basic training. 
Okay. How did you feel? How, how were you? Were you excited to go out there? Were you oh, nervous? Fuck yeah. Were you? Yeah. You were ready to go? Yeah, yeah. I joined. I mean, I literally when I went in Meps is where you go to like uh, sign up and you do your paperwork and you get your physical and all that stuff. So I went in there and you, you came time to pick your job, and so you take an ASVAB test, which kind of dictates what jobs you can get. Okay. So as long as you score one ten on your GT, is that like an aptitude test? Pretty much aptitude test, and uh, as long as you score one ten on the main part of it, you can have any job. And I scored one ten, so I had all these job options, and we're going through them all. And I look at the lady, and I'm like, "Who are the guys that go in and like kick in the doors and shit and raid houses?" And she's like, "Oh, that's infantry." I'm like, "Yeah, I want to do that." Yeah, and uh, she's like, "Are you sure?" She's like, there's like a lot of other jobs here. It's intelligent. I'm like, yes. would you would you have been able to be infantry at like a, a one hundred five or a, a hundred? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So infantry is the one where if you score freaking eighty five, you're going infantry. Okay. You're infantry or cook. So it's like the choices. it's like the lowest the lowest and low. Right. Okay. Which is why she was like, uh, are you sure? You've pitched yourself here super high, but exactly. you actually that's what I wanted to fucking do. I wanted to fight. That's that's the only thing I wanted to do. So yeah, I was I was amped, absolutely amped. Basic training for me was life changing. Um. I went in a boy, came out a man. Like, there's no better, like, better way to say that than that. That's I'm fantastic. Cliche as it is, it's true as fuck. I went in and just this little fucking punk, disrespectful little punk, and I came out just completely changed. You'd said that you'd had a, a difficult childhood and a difficult youth. Did you start to find a little bit more of a sense of purpose there as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and a family. So it was the first kind of family I felt in my life. The family up until then had maybe not wasn't shown a loyalty. Yeah. The definition of family was very off. Okay. And so, yeah, it was just this bond, this love that I hadn't felt before, this brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it energized me. And, uh, and then obviously going to my new unit, I talked to my buddies about it all the time, but you know, that feeling of youth, right? Where the whole world is out in front of you and it's just Everything it's that there feel. and it's beautiful, man. And I, I'll never forget getting to Germany, flying there. And I was actually crying in Baltimore when I was heading out to Germany because I was scared, you know, scared of leaving my family and leaving everything behind. Change is a scary thing. Yeah. And, um, but, then but when I got to Germany, bro, my God, I'm telling you, I was on the bus going from the airport to, to my new base and I'm just, just the feelings. I'll never forget. Rush. Absolute rush. So yeah, I was ready. I was prepared. It was, it was a fantastic time period of my life. And then of course, you know, you get into the unit and you're it's it's a whole different lifestyle change. You're waking up. Well, you do it on your own free will now, which is yeah. crazy. But you yeah. wake up five every morning and you you do PT and then you have chow at seven and then you go to work day at eight and you're off at five. It's like it's just and except you're in uniform and you're doing military shit. It's just weird. It was just a, it was a really cool point in my life. That's awesome. So yeah. then you got deployed? So then, yeah, lots of training in there. And that, that, that side of it was not fun. Obviously, it comes with the territory. But, uh, yeah, months and months of training. Um, how, and did then, you, how did you find that uh, physically? It, tough, tougher mentally, but definitely tough physically as well. I mean, you're, you're, they're trying to get you with that training. You're out at a month of time, right? And you're staying in tents. And it's pretty much just like Iraq's going to be because they want you to feel it. They mm. want you to well, it's get, pointless. It's pointless having you the sensation of 50%. You need to have felt right. 110%. And then if you're playing for the NFL, are you going to go straight from college into your first game or are you going to fucking practice? <laughs> yeah, okay. So we practice our, ass, our asses off. And uh, that meant, you know, months at a time, staying intense, fucking no entertainment, working 12 hour days. It, it was rough, but it was also obviously when you get to combat, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. You want to I needed, I needed this. Yep. So, uh, so we ended up uh, deploying. I got to Iraq again, scared for sure. You know, anybody who goes to a combat zone is, is nervous, scared, but excited, man, excited. I'll never forget driving up from Kuwait 
We uh, did a, a mid, middle of the night uh, convoy from Kuwait to Baghdad. Is this in like big Humvees? Uh huh. And a ro- long row of Humvees. Yeah. And I'm in the gunner's turret, just looking around, just like. And I didn't know, bro. Like there was, there weren't bad areas we were driving through, but I didn't know. So I'm up there, like, yeah, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> GI fucking Joe, man. So um, I think definitely for me, like the as a as a Brit, our stereotype of a American infantry guy would be exactly that. Like, yeah, get Dude, some. You're hard on straight up, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just you should see us in firefights. Literally in a in a during middle of a firefight when n- normal everyday people would be like freaking out. You're like, yeah, get that motherfucker. <laughs> oh it's weird, gosh. bro. It's weird, man. It's weird. You don't. It's. You don't view death normally when you're over there. You don't see it as something that can actually happen. It's weird. You know it is. You yeah. know it's like every day it's it's it could happen, but you don't think about it. It's like I think that's one of the um that's one of the things from having done a lot of reading on PTSD and stuff like that which we'll get onto later. One of the things that I think I've realized is that people especially people that do that are in the army until they're out there they don't appreciate their capacity for malevolence and for aggression. And it's that reflection period where everything slows down afterwards. And you're totally right. Like in the heat of the moment, like look at, look at what happens when someone sees red and they get in a fight, just a normal, like a bar fight. Like, would you have punched this person and like gone outside onto the street and been shouting and screaming and kicking and going hysterical? Would you have done that under normal circumstances? No. But then you put someone into a very specific situation with a very specific set of emotions and they have the this capacity that is far and away from what you'd have thought originally. Which is funny you say that too, and I know we're going to hit on it later, but that is part of the problem with PTSD is that you spend this time in combat where you turn all of those emotions off that are necessary to be human. Mm-hmm. And the only ones you really focus on are aggression and anger because that's what you need over there. You need to have that. Because if you're on... Well, you'd be very, very dead if you had to if you had to make Timid. every decision. Yeah. If every decision was mediated by compassion, you, you're you not going to last very no, long, right? Not at all. So you've driven up. You've arrived. You've- We've arrived. And that's actually the funny part of my story is that three weeks in, I got hit by my first IED. So we had been on a bunch of missions and stuff like that um, up to that point. What's and a mission? So, you so going out, uh, at that point, it was route, route clearance. Okay. So what we would do is literally just drive five miles freaking hour up and down the roads looking for IEDs. Okay. And then if we found something that was a potential IED, we call EOD. EOD comes out, checks it out. It, it's What's the vehicle that you're in? That was a Humvee. Okay. I was always in the Humvee, and then I had three uh, missions in a, driving a Bradley, which was cool. Tank. Big okay. Tank. Yeah. Nice. Mm. So, yeah, we're coming in from one of those missions. Things had been calm to that point. Had you seen any action by this? Point? Nope, okay. no action yet at all. Three weeks in, and then we uh, we take the road, turn onto the road to go in, onto the base, and then boom, blew up. We hit my vehicle. It was a, it was a, about a mid range one, so it didn't it didn't breach the vehicle, but the windshield completely shattered. It did breach the side. Uh, the, my uh, TC, who's the passenger side. It came through his window and went into his helmet, like right at the top. He actually oh, wow. kept his helmet and the goggles he had because they are lined with shrapnel and he didn't get hurt at all. No way. But that was... Where were you? Position? I was driving. Okay. And it was on the opposite side? It was on the yeah, yeah. opposite okay. side. Yeah. So, yeah, that was eye-opener. That was, hey, welcome to Iraq, buddy. How, <laughs> how did the, the heart rate go? I, I 
it was it was insane. It was unlike anything I've ever felt, obviously, until the other IED. But it things slowed down. It was everything was slow motion. You know how they you know see it in movies and you hear people say it, but it's the <laughs> absolute truth. It slows completely down. I saw the windshield crack like in slow motion as it happened. It, it's just it was weird. So fascinating. Things slowed down completely, and then of course it stopped, and you're just like. Oh my God! I'm, I'm alive. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're just in like a Humvee's just a big car, basically. Like very armored car. But oh, yeah. is it okay? So very, very armored. Heavily reinforced. Heavily armored. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's that saved your life. Once. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, five times over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my absolutely. God. We got hit five times. That that one was the second worst. Obviously, the one that did me in was the the worst. And then the other ones were kind of smaller, a, a homemade explosive types. But okay. Yeah, they they weren't. Super destructive, like but professionally still, produced. You're still you get you hear next to your vehicle. That's all you really need. Yeah. Okay. So you've had your first one, and so then we had our first one, and that was that. And then you know we spent another year there, and lots of firefights, lots of uh, uh, you know again some smaller IEDs. We lost some guys, unfortunately. Um, we, we ended up losing our first two guys. Uh, April Fool's Day, actually. No. April way. Fool's Day. It was um, a couple weeks after I got hit. And they were dismounted and got hit by an IED, and uh, one of them dismounted as in off, off out of the Humvee. Okay. And then uh, yeah, so that that's another one that was kind of like it's weird because it's like stages in combat. You yep. know, you, you got your first introduction to combat, and then you you lose your first guy, and yep. you have to process that, and then you have to process having to go back to work the next day and pretend it never happened. You know what I mean? Again, which is where PTSD manifests itself because you can't properly mourn them. You haven't had time to do the reflection you can't, process, right? Because if you're thinking about them the next day when you're on mission, you may end up putting yourself or others in danger um, mm. because of it. So, Well, we discussed this briefly yesterday when we, were, when we were sat down talking that the period of reflection for everything is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's why practicing gratitude and trying to have... A lot of people in the normal world will confuse busyness with success and that staying busy, constantly just moving in one direction is somehow a marker for getting things right. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily the way that you should look at it because this period of reflection allows you to realize what's gone on. It allows you to internalize the, the um, situation that you've been through. And then out the other side of it, you have some learning and, okay, I'm now ready for the next one. Yeah. Whereas what you happen when you're deployed is you just have a batch of experience for however many months or however many years. And then you get home and you're like, okay, there is a fucking Amazon truck full of shit that I now need to try and mm -hmm. go through. And we all know that memory is one of the least accurate ways of actually recalling something. Like by the time that you're two years deep and you've been through all of this stuff, the first thing that you did, like, can you actually accurately properly reflect on that? Probably not. Like it's become confused and conflated and, and manipulated by all the other things that you've been through. And then by the time you get home, you got to go back through it again. So, mm -hmm. um, okay. So we're now one year deep. Yeah. So, well, not one year deep. Again, it's just the whole process. Um, Lost our first two guys. Um, we ended up losing eight total. And and then we got to October 22nd, 2006. We're nearing the end of the tour. How, have, how much longer is left? Two days. So we have two days left. And uh, we're doing what's called a right seat ride. We're, we're taking the new guys around the area of operations and showing them, you know, showing them around. Getting them ready to take over. And, uh, yeah, we were just routine mission. Got hit. And uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm waking up and smoke is 
completely filling the the Humvee. There's flesh everywhere, just charred flesh all over the windshield. I had no idea. I didn't feel anything at that time. I'm just like I woke up. I saw all this. So did you hear the bang, or was it? The- so no, it was like it was like well, I heard the bang. So it was like bang, blacked out, right? Yeah. And so I woke up. Vehicle's still moving, and I'm just like I have no idea what. Really- Where are you sat? Driving again. Okay. So the vehicle's still moving. I go to try to break the vehicle, mm-hmm. and my right leg's not working. I'm like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. And I look down, and I see there's, like, shit hanging out of my thigh. So I know I'm injured there. I still don't feel it, though. Mm-hmm. Use my left foot to break. That's when my uh, my gunner, I look back. I'm like, are you all right? He's seated on the ground, and both his legs are gone. One of his legs is sitting right next to me. So that's when the guy in the back, I, I also noticed the other. We have five people in the vehicle total. Three are passed out. Two are passed out, I'm sorry. And then us three, me, the gunner, and the guy behind me were awake. Guy behind me goes, hey, can you please, please open my door? Please open my door. I can't take the smell anymore. Unless you, Until you smell human flesh, you just don't understand it. But it's very distinct, and it's, it's, you'll ne- you never forget it. Okay. So I, I lean back. I open the door for him because his arms were all jacked up. And I turn back around, and that's when I felt it. That's yep. when everything kind of came to. Slowed a little bit. Yep. Okay. The, 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 um, um. Fuck, help me out here. The adrenaline? Yeah, it's the adrenaline, but uh, the shock. Yep. The shock kind of started wearing off, and that's when it was just like the most excruciating thing I've ever felt in my life. What had ended up happening was the the metal that had gone in my leg was so hot that it was cooking my leg from the inside. Oh, my God. And So, so was that from the IED, or was that from the Humvee? So we're actually come back around to the EFPs, explosively formed projectiles is what I got hit with. We got hit with two of them. Now, what these are is there's a canister like that, right? Metal, metal canister. Uh, circular they stuff explosives inside and on the end they put this copper contact lens shape uh, this contact lens shaped piece of copper okay it's right on the end when the explosive goes off that copper turns molten and shoots yep and so it hits the side of the Humvee and eats right through it breaks through eats right through and once it hits the AC on the inside and hardens so it's like a cannonball yeah so I caught I caught one of the EFPs that broke up into four pieces so yep. one was a baseball size one was like a quarter size golf ball size from that then on and then I also was full of plastic and the shit from the door that had come in too yep 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 but the, the stuff that was cooking my leg was the pieces of copper because that's what it does it's it so turns it's designed molten. to do yep. but you said there was two Two. On either side of the road? No, on both sides. Yeah, okay. So one stayed full, and the other one broke up. If the other one didn't break up, I'd be dead. I wouldn't be here today. Really? Yes, because it didn't do the damage that it should have. The other one didn't break up, and it, it killed my buddy. It went like right through his torso. And was that the gunner? That was, no, that was my uh, passenger, the TC. And that's the side it came mm-hmm. through on, right? Okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So, so pretty much... That's the point where the pain kicked in, and that's the point also where I looked over at him and knew that he wasn't going to make it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fucking yelling. The gunner's yelling. We're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I mean, lots of pain going through this vehicle. Yeah. Our guys come up from the other vehicles and pull us out. Um, that's about, How big's the convoy? Only four vehicles at that point. Okay. So they, they pull us out. We start you, were, saying, you were, is it point? Or taking first? Yes, we were point. Yep, we were the first in line, which is, that's... Major David Taylor is the man who died that day, and um, that's that was his thing. He wanted to lead. He always said, if, if, if we're going to get hit, we're, yeah, it's going to be us. And um, and so we're pulled out. And this is kind of the fascinating thing about this. And, and my story kind of revolves around, I, I'm a very big believer in God. And I have a lot of faith, and these are the, my God moments, I feel like. Those are the moments that they should not have happened, and they did. So 
when we got hit, there was a CIA chopper flying overhead. They saw us get hit. They came back around and they medevaced us out. Had we not had that, it would have taken up to 20, 30, maybe 40 minutes, maybe longer to get a medevac there. My femoral artery was fucking uh, nicked. So I easily, like, one of us easily could have died there that day had that CIA chopper not been overhead. So the chances of that happening are slim to, like, negative. Might as well have not existed. Pretty much, yeah. So you're thinking act of God, right? Act of God, absolutely, yeah. Um, cause they were, it was, it was so weird, man. I'm telling you it's at that point I had shock set in hardcore. I didn't feel the pain anymore. I'm in the chopper, right? My buddy's head's laying in my so lap. How do you, how, what happens? How do they get you out of the vehicle? They, well, they pulled, they pretty much carried us. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So you got my guys there, right? So we have uh, three other vehicles behind us. Mm-hmm. We've got a shit ton of guys. So they're helping drag us out. Mm-hmm. The guys on the chopper are getting us in. Um, so me and my buddy, Al, who was a dismount, he was behind major Taylor. Yep. He was passed out. He had lost his leg above the knee. Okay. Um, he's His head's in my lap. I'm sitting in the back of the chopper. I'm smacking his fucking face trying to wake him up. And this yep. is one of those um, little tiny choppers. The CIA uh, uh, Delta Force, they use the little uh, baby Hueys. They're super small. Is there like a, a flat area There's in the like back? just a seat in the back. So me and Al were in the back. Okay. The guy, they're so badass, bro. This is just like a movie. But the guy, there was two of them, CIA guys. Yeah. And one of the CIA guys couldn't sit in the back because we were back there. So he's hanging off the side of the motherfucking helicopter, all dragged, like, all fucking G.I. Joe'd out, dude. And he's just like, just riding, Just man. watching. Just riding. Oh, my God. Like, and so I'm seeing this when I'm in shock. I'm just like, <laughs> so then this is the funniest part we're, it's only a short flight away but you know it felt like forever I'm yep. looking down over the city of Baghdad as we're flying in absolute shock and I feel like I can fly like I legitimately at that time <laughs> thought I could fly and I almost jumped out of the helicopter and right before I was going to jump out of the helicopter to start flying I passed out probably just as well yeah, pretty good. Probably just as well. So I passed out, and then next thing you know, I woke up at the Cache, which is a little combat support hospital in Baghdad. Every uh, major uh, base has them. Little support hospital for when shit like this happens. Okay. So we get in there, surgeries, and that's pretty much, I mean, that period of time, that five days from going from Baghdad to Balad to Lanstuhl is to this, is DC. This, is this you being rated up through um, better and better equipped uh, medically, yep. medical. So it's uh, that, and then also stabilizing you. So it's like the you have the initial surgery, right? So you go to the cash. Yep. They clean you out. Okay. They do anything they may need to do, like right they then and to, there. So fix the femoral artery. So that they they hesitated on that because they didn't. Know, it was nicked, but they didn't know what to do yet. They didn't, because obviously you don't want to fuck with a femoral artery in a little combat sport hospital. That's so this is so we talking like a, a basically a glorified tent in the middle of the desert. Pretty much. Okay. So I was actually very lucky. Because I did cut my femoral artery, but because the shrapnel was so hot, it cauterized it immediately. Yeah. Ah, so the shrapnel both injured the and saved you. The shrapnel both injured and saved my life. How poetically weird is that? It's Crazy. So man. much justice in that. That's unbelievable. So, yeah, you, you go from uh, Baghdad Combat Sport Hospital to Balad, which is, again, a big tent hospital, but it's legit hospital in a tent. Okay. Huge. Yeah. Go from Balad, they stabilize you there. You go to Landstuhl, where they finally, like, settle you. Are you still, is this still in Iraq? Oh, uh, Germany. Germany, right, okay. And so they set- how do you get from uh, Iraq to Germany? That was just C-130. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they right. have hospitals. Like, just load you in the back on a stretcher? Stretcher, right? yep. So what, would the, what are those journeys like? Horrible. That, that, that whole time in my life was horrible. 
So because it was surgery every single day, so okay. I didn't get water. I couldn't drink water, obviously, because you have to have surgery. You can't drink water before surgery. You have IVs, so yep. you, you're getting hydrated. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that you're dying. Thirsty. So I'd be like sucking on the little sponges with water and shit. Yep. In and out of surgery. Um, and then the flights, you know, the flights, I don't really remember the ones um, from Baghdad and Balad, but the one from Germany to DC was. That's like what, probably 14 hours? It was, yeah, it was about on a, C- a C 130, about, um, yeah, about 13. And Which no is difficult. 13 hours on a plane is difficult on an A380 with like. Flight service and exactly, you know, unlimited gin and all the rest of and it. And you got your movies and all yep. that. We didn't have anything. And then again, you're you're in a significant amount of pain too. And there's only three nurses on the whole plane serving. How I'm many- telling you, you should have. That's you would be in 2006. I was one of about 150 on that flight. And you're talking on about one this entire flight. This entire flight is stretcher, 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 rows of stretchers. Like a and they're three match. high. Oh my god! Swear so they're God. tiered. They're tiered. So it's like a, going to a football game. Yep, that's how many people were injured back then. And so the nurses, like, they're trying to do their best, but they can't hit everybody when you need, like, when you need pain meds. Yeah, they can't get to you in a, in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So it's, it was it's it was the worst flight of my life. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So now, if you need to fly somewhere, do you just feel like this? Oh, it's fantastic, this right? Yeah, I've yeah, exactly. Flown in New Zealand a couple times. I'm like, this ain't so bad. This is absolutely fine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So what are the what's the medication that the guys are giving you to suppress the pain immediately? Oh shit! I, I couldn't even tell you what the ones were back then. I can tell you in DC I was getting Dilaudid and morphine and like the highest shit you can imagine. I I imagine back then I was I mean probably or those days something just ridiculous because yeah. I was in and out of it like legitimately just in and out of it. Okay. I was I was semi conscious, not living. Yeah. Okay. Not not so much semi conscious because I knew what was going on, but I would just go in and out. Okay. So. We get to DC. Why DC? Uh, Walter Reed Arm, um, Walter Reed Military Medical Center. Is that because of where you were deployed from, or is that because that was the best facility for dealing with your injuries? It's a military medical facility. So they have the, the army has two. Okay. Um, and it's ones in uh, San Antonio, yep. and then ones in uh, DC. So I guess you if you're a burn go- victim, you go to Texas. If you're uh, anything else, you usually go to DC. Okay, and the kind of opposite ends of the country as yeah. well, to a degree, I guess. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so I ended up going to D.C., and at that point, I still had my leg. So, but it was just trashed, obviously. And uh, the femorality was still kind of in limbo. And it was October 31st, 2006, so we're talking, what's, nine, nine days later? Nine days later, it's Halloween, and I, I hadn't been sleeping, man. I mean, lots and lots of pain, as you can imagine, lots of pain meds, and so... Just real bad insomnia, mm-hmm. and then obviously you're you're starting to realize what's happened to you. Yeah. Which again, you, you actually you know you do as I said you don't think about death over there, but you know it's a it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. You really don't think, nor do you really consider it a possibility of losing a limb or getting injured like that. You know, it's just not a thing you really think about. You know, it's there, yeah. but it's just like you just never really put yourself in that position. So I'm just sitting here like, wow, what now? You know? Yeah. October 31st comes around and it's four o'clock in the morning. I'm five o'clock in the morning. I'm watching home improvement on TV because I can't sleep. And all of a sudden, you know, I have all these machines hooked up to my leg and shit. And one of them pumps, uh, the harmful fluid out. Right. Okay. Starts pumping out blood, like real deep burgundy blood. And I'm like, no, that's not good. So I call the nurse nurse yeah. comes in like, Oh, no big balls up some, uh, um, towels and puts it under my leg to put pressure on it. And about two seconds later, 
the the bandaging rips off and blood starts fucking spurting, dude. Like fucking three feet into the air, and I'm just like tripping. Yeah. He's tripping now too. Like he was all calm before, and he just starts oh, freaking shit. out. There it is again. There it is. <laughs> and um, that next thing you know, within seconds, my room is full of medical personnel frantically working. Blood's covered my sheets. And so I'm what, just, what's happened? My femoral blue. Okay. Femoral artery blue. So it had been nicked and it was nicked and, pressure, and I had been in and out of surgery, then cleaning shit out, and it was just it it was it couldn't finally take the went. pressure anymore. Couldn't take. So it this anymore. in the same way as a like a, a slow puncture in a tire, then at high speeds turns into a yep. Oh, yep. Okay. So I can't explain the feeling, but it's almost like theatrical, right? It's like, oh, you're in a fucking movie. Like, is this my life right now? Am I bleeding to death right now? And like, you know, you're getting woozy and the TV starts like 3D now because yeah, you're yeah, just yeah, so yeah. fucked. And I remember begging them not to let me die. You know, I'm just like, don't let me die. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. It's all I could say. And I call him mystery doctor, but he was a, he was an African-American doctor, a very handsome man. And he, uh, Right here, he pushed down and where my femoral meets my aorta so hard that it was sore for about a month after, and he saved my life. Had he not done that from my room to the OR, I would have died. Absolutely so died. So he stemmed the flow. He, he stopped the, the flow until I could get through the OR where they could get a tourniquet on me. Yep. And uh, and absolutely saved my life. So I get to the How OR. How long was that the time? It, it was actually quite a bit. So you're, I went from, I think the ORs were on the fourth floor, and I was on the sixth floor. So we literally, he had to take me from my ward all the way to the main elevators, down the elevator to the fourth floor, and then to the OR. And he, the whole time, steady pressure, the whole fucking time, walking yeah. along the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, gurney. Yeah. Which is difficult as you're moving as well, Crazy right? hard. Yeah. And so I got to the OR, and I remember them freaking out and getting me on the table. And I'm still, like, woozy, but still with it. And, yeah. you know, they're just up here, and they're putting the tourniquet on. And the next thing you know, it's just, and I'm out. And then I wake up and I'm in the ICU and there's staples all down this side. I've got a scar running the length of my leg and there's yep. looks like fucking Frankenstein. Yeah. And then this side um, is just new, new bandages and shit like that. And yep. I'm like, what the fuck happened? Doctor's in there. My parents are in there. The doctor's like, wow. <laughs> it's like you gave us a really, really good scare there. They ended up telling me that they, uh, my from artery blew. Obviously, I lost two thirds of the blood in my body. Two-thirds of the blood in your yeah, body. So what are we talking now, like eight pints probably? Yeah, so what was it, 5.5 liters in the human body? So, and not, Well, in a 180-pound human body as well. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I don't know, a lot of blood. How, how, what's the level at which you die? I don't know. But all it I know is It must be around they, about two-thirds. Yeah, so what they, they, what they did immediately was... People start, faint after they give a pint yeah. of blood, which is half of a liter. So if had that again, if that had happened and I'd been Baghdad, I would have been dead. Yeah. Done. So thank God I was in the hospital. They could get blood up. I mean, they started pumping blood through me right then and there. Yeah. Um, once I got to the OR. So anyway, yeah, woke up and said, you gave us quite a scare there. We ended up having to take the vein out of your left leg and put it in your right to create a new femoral artery. So your left leg's vein, vein is in my right is leg. your right leg's femoral artery. And they, they pretty much just flip it around. So they take it out of here, flip it, and turn it into an artery. No way. I swear to God, man. It's crazy. Medicines. It's fascinating. Incredible. So that's another beautiful thing about it is I lost six inches of my femur, right? So when it went in, went in right here, blew out this side, I lost about that much of my femur. Yep. They had to take it out. There's just little pieces left. They grew my femur back using bone grafts and stuff. I had four different bone grafts, and they, they grew all of that back. 
and it looks fucking crazy and weird and wicked, but it's a bone. I run on it and all that. It's like it just blows my mind. Uh, what I they mean, can do. F- for nothing else, like I, I've given blood once, but never that much. But you know, hearing a situation like that where someone's life gets saved by the fact that they need probably yeah. circa five, eight, ten pints of blood, whatever it might be. Like, T- if T- people aren't donating blood, you're dead. And and that's I'm one person, and I got blood more times than I can even count. Because most surgeries, you know, you go. I was, I have, I've had 37 surgeries, and most of those surgeries you come out of. You, if you bleed a lot, you need blood, dude. I, I got blood probably about a quarter of those surgeries, and then obviously with the femoral artery, I got blood. I mean, those Big first time. two days, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, I woke up and my life was changed, man. I mean, I just, I was so fearful after that because I was like, what if I was sleeping when that blew? You know what I mean? What if it blows again? Yeah. What the fuck am I going to do? So I didn't sleep. If I thought I couldn't sleep before that, I didn't sleep at all after. Not at all. Wow. Um, and so that ended up, that's, the femoral artery blowing is why I lost my lower limb. Okay. Um, I initially was, you know, they thought I was going to lose my leg up here because okay. of where I got hit. I didn't have damage to my lower limb. Okay. But because of the femoral artery, it was a, about a 14-hour surgery, and they had the tourniquet on for so long that when they took the tourniquet off to rush the blood back down the new vein, yes. it's called compartment syndrome. Um, I know what it is. Yeah. So I got that real bad, and they had to do fasciotomies on both sides. Can you briefly explain what compartment syndrome is for people who don't know? So pretty much they, the doctors explained to me in layman's term as a hot dog that's in the microwave too long. So it's too much pressure yep. because of the blood the, the blood flow. It hadn't been flowing for a long time, and then all of a sudden that pressure um, – it, 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 it like blows the freaking leg up and you have to slit it to, yep. to relieve that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened with mine was that led to necrosis of my muscle and okay. my lower limb because okay. of the pressure. And you only need 13 hours without blood flow for that to occur. Yeah. So, um, I mean, less than that too. Yeah. So yeah. you could have, you know, the, the tolerance that you'd have needed probably maybe six hours, eight hours, yeah. 10 hours or whatever. And you could have had the same. Yeah. So they ended up having to take a big flap on my muscle out uh, yep. due to necrosis. And that flap on muscle was what was used to lift my foot up. Yep. So after that, um, you know, obviously it took about a year to walk again and all that shit. But by the time I had come to that point, you know, fast forward two years, my leg was worthless, man. Like my, my thigh was getting good and all that. And I was getting stronger. But my lower leg, it just, it, I drug it around with me. There's no dorsiflexion, right? No dorsiflexion. So you can't lift the toes off the ground. No. The reverse of a uh, calf raise. Yep. Could you do calf raises? Yes. Uh, no, no. Yeah, calf raises. Yes, yes, yes. So you I, could go up on your toes? I could go up on my toes. Couldn't go I up could on not. your heel? Yep. Okay. And uh, so I had surgery to try to fix that. didn't work. So hang so- on. We've got, we've, you've had the, um, the artery and the vein switch over. The next year or two years, is, is that heavy Therapy. rehab? Rehab. Rehab. Huge rehab. So I dislocated my knee in the incident too. So a good six months was just working that knee back out. Oh my God. Yeah. So that my knee and they never fixed it. So it just healed itself down. Yeah. It's all scar tissue and stuff. So I had this little Vietnamese physical therapist and she <laughs> used to just get up there and crank it, man. And it would, it was horrible. Wow. But yeah, so that was a good six months just so to get this, the knee. You know, for, for me watching my, my only experience of um, seeing army rehab is like what, what you'll have seen on, Black Hawk Down and like, you know, like sort of super American movies. But is it like that? Is it the parallettes like with the oh, hands yeah. and the Zimmer frame, like and the yep. person helping you walk? Oh, and yeah. The, yeah. The sweating and the shaking. Oh, yeah. The- Absolutely. Freaking lootly. And then, and you know, you have to work hard in there. If you don't work hard in there, you see the drastic difference in people when they don't do what they need to do in rehab. 
But if you're working hard in there, yeah, you're, you're killing yourself. I mean, it, it sucks. It really, really sucks. But did that for two years. Um, had a tendon transfer to try to get my dorsiflexion back. And yep. It didn't didn't really work. And um, and also, I was getting um, hammer toe. So because I didn't have the ability to raise my my foot up or yep. my toes, my toes were slowly but surely going like this. Yep. And the older I got, the more they would do that. And Curling it was just down. extremely painful. Yep. A lot of pain in my ankle as well. A lot of pain in my uh, foot arch. Okay. So it got to the point where I said, I, I can't fucking do this. I'm 22 years old. Like, I'm young. I'm in physical therapy just dying. And I'm looking at these pro- guys with prosthetics just doing this crazy shit. And I'm like... How many hours a week are you doing rehab for that year or two years? About four hours a week. Okay. Uh, or, I'm sorry, four hours a day, five four days a week. Four hours a day, five days a week. Yeah. So it's a full-time job just trying Absolutely. to get your body back yep. to work. Because you have to do you have stretching for 30 minutes and you have weight training for an hour. and then So you it's have, like you're being a professional athlete to just become a human again. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, which is what it takes. I mean, you have to. That's mind-blowing. So... Um, yeah, it was really, I'm thankful. So, so, so thankful to have been in the rehab facility I was in with other combat wounded veterans because I got to see those young guys with their prosthetics doing this crazy shit. Yeah. And I'm like, that should be me. Like I shouldn't be fucking, I'm doing what crazy shit would they do? With box jumps and running and, you know, like just things I would have never ran again. You know, I would have, it just the things that I wanted to do as a 22 year old athlete. Yeah. And uh, so I went in and I said, is there anything we can do? You know, and they, they mentioned elective amputation. And I, and I, I, I said, you know, they said, you got to think about it. If you want to do it, we're, we're willing to do it. You know, we've done it before and we just can't promise that it'll work out. So it, uh, it, it took me about a week. How I was going to say, because that decision to lose yeah. a limb. Yeah. It's like they, I actually read up a shit ton online, obviously, in that week. During, during the period? In that week, yeah. And, um, and one of them likened it to losing a family member and it really much is you know because it's part of you yeah yeah and uh, but after that week when i made my decision it was done you okay. know i didn't and then you have to wait six months they, they have to make sure that you're you're mentally sound right uh, you're so not just you like i'm gonna hack off decision. a limb yeah yeah like i'm gonna dye my hair yeah and i'll get i'll, I'll get <laughs> maybe the, lose a limb yeah, whatever exactly. yeah yeah so yeah I, I went through the six months which is good for me too because i shouldn't you need to do the process room. it yeah Six months, bro. I'm like, let's get this bitch off, man. Was it during that period? Was it getting worse? Yeah, absolutely. And and I was seeing, I was feeling the limitations of my body. So mm. two years of rehab, right? And I'm I'm like, every other part of my body, my, my thighs getting stronger, my bones getting stronger, like the veins, the femur's, good back. Now. The femur's back, like everything was coming together, but that. Yeah. And so I was at my, let's I was get, at the let's ceiling. Get this I had no, off. let's get that motherfucker off. And my, my dad to this day. <laughs> it's the only surgery I came out of with a smile on my face, man. No. It's the only one. My, my came out, and I'm just like, I knew it was new life. It was like this is my opportunity. I had reached my max here, yep. and now I knew that the ceilings just this got raised, fucking tenfold. And um, oh yeah. So the funny thing about that is, I have to throw this out there. It's <laughs> some of my favorite pictures. But we actually had a going away party for my foot the night before, <laughs> and all my buddies signed my foot. My dad was there. He signed my foot. My sister was there. And they put a little coupon cut line on there. Don't cut above this line. <laughs> I went in for the surgery. They're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Who's this guy? Yeah. So, yeah, got it hacked so how off. how did they do it? Uh, I mean, just they pretty much. So, go through. Because mine is different. The beautiful part about having your leg and doing an elective amputation is they have a lot of shit to work with. They've got, they, they can choose exactly Bill, where. Exactly how they want to do it and what they want to use. So, have they, have they the, wherever it is that the cut has been made, is that the optimal 
Um, optimal. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Optimal for in terms of uh, legs. Usage. Okay. So it's what's the um, specific kind of amputation that it was? Is there an is there a just BK? It's called baloney amputation. Okay. Yeah. There's no like specific. They're okay. all the same. Yep. Um, where the fuck was I? Oh, so they, they cut it, but they cut it right to the back of the muscle. Right. Mm. And then they take it off. So that big muscle flaps right here. Right. Yep. Then they take a little piece of your tibia. And they sew it into your. Well, I guess you've got shitloads of spare shit bone of spare parts. That's what I'm saying. It's like Frankenstein shit. Yeah. So they take a little. I want another piece. ear. I yeah. really always wanted a six. Can finger. we throw a rib on my forehead, maybe, <laughs> to see how it looks? Um, so they take a little piece of tibia and they connect your tibia and fibula at the bottom to make a good little support. Yeah, because it's I guess there's a, lot, there's a lot of pressure that's going to now be going through so the bottom. Just, and if it's only two bones sticking straight down, you can imagine that it may, may end up hurting. So they put the hurdle on the end to act as kind of like a yep. nice little. Okay. And then they bring that flap up. Yep. And sew it. Okay. Pretty much it. And uh, yeah, so got out and then it's back to rehab. You know, yep. another year of rehab. It took me about a year to learn how to walk right and about another year to run right. And then by so that, it's four years of rehab. Four now, years of total two, rehab. Two years for the earlier, two years. Six months for the, to make the decision. Yep. Another two years off the back of it. Yeah. Wow. And so then uh, I got done with that. And I mean, it was the best fucking decision I ever could have made. I mean, I, the, absolutely. The things I've done since then with my leg not only blow my mind, but it's just, it, 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 it proves to me that I made the right decision. I'm happy with that. You know, I've never regretted it, not once. And to be able to look back now and be like, man, look at all the things I've done yeah. that I never so could have you, It sounds so crazy. It's such a reverse, um, reversely logical decision for a normal person hearing that to go I chose to lose a limb and it's the best decision I could have made yeah like for most people that would be the you know it's heart sinking one of the scariest things that you could do and Absolutely. yet for you it's what's giving you life but see I had to live through two years of the of the you knew what it's like on the other yep. side and of the, the other side was not fucking fun okay and so uh, what's it what's it like learning to walk it's not much honestly it's not much different you mm-hmm. don't it I mean, you're learning to walk again as an adult, so it's, it's kind of different. But the feeling-wise, it's kind of it's one foot in front of the other. You know what I mean? But it, it's it takes a lot, man, a lot. And a lot of that has to do with not the nub or the lower limb, but your the rest of the body. Because okay. it all has to adapt. Yeah. You don't realize how much you use your foot for and your calf yeah. for pushing off for everything. So do you feel like your core is like just oh, rock yeah. solid in yeah, comparison now? Because you've got to – you'll have to balance through your midline as opposed to using dorsiflexion to re-stabilize, mm-hmm. right? So you stabilize your whole lower leg yeah. mostly through your core yeah. as opposed to with your toes and with your ankle. So, yeah, that must have been a real a real change of biomechanics for you to start to relearn that. And it, it does. It takes a long time. I actually had real bad foot drop. or I'm sorry, real bad um, hip drop when I was walking after I got um, amputated. Okay. Because you you're, you require a lot more, as you said, hip and core movement and yep. and act activity than normal. So were you? So it's real bad. Hit. Yeah. Yep. So like that. So what she I did this for six months, man, an hour every single day. She had me walk toward a mirror, walk back, walk toward a mirror, so that you walk could back see so that like I could you see what I was doing. And so talk me through the rehabilitation. Is it? Are we back on four hours a day? Yes, five days a week. Absolutely. So oh and then God. once you get your leg, but that's the cool part is. So like I told you, I was kind of like. I had reached my point about a year into my first little stent. Yep. And I was just kind of going through the motions after that. But with the leg, every it's every day better, 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 more, more, more. Do you feel like more. you're getting after it? 
by the time I was out, I ended my rehab there and medically retired, dude, I was the guy in there that other people were looking at like, oh, God, I can Fun. do that one day, BT's, which to me was BT's really fucking it. cool. That's amazing. I was the one doing box jumps in there. I was the one doing sprints. I was like, it was, it's That's one, fantastic. It, it, it's, it's like full circle. circle of life. Right? Yeah. So it was really fucking cool. I was in a really good place then, man. Really, yeah. really, really good place. Um, and then I medically retired and I'm like, man, the whole world's out. It was like that new feeling again the whole world's and all that. And then, yeah. <laughs> The world shit all over me, but it's civilian life, man. You, you, it's funny how that shit works. You're just like, so talk me through reintegration. So that's, you know, like I said, there's this excitement, right? Like I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be a college kid and I'm going to do all this stuff. Yeah. You don't fucking realize how much support you have at that medical med- military medical uh, community. You don't realize how much from you rely on there, from, from the, the doctors to the rehabs, to the friends you've made there, to the other combat wounded veterans who understand what you're going through without even having to say a word. Mm. To the nonprofits that are there to help you, you have literally an army of people there to support you, and you don't realize what it does for you until you leave it. Yep. And so I ended up going to college in West Virginia because I wanted just a fresh start. Yep. You know, I wanted something new. Yep. Didn't know anybody there, and it ended up being my downfall at that time because I got there and there was. I mean, I I didn't know who I was, man. I didn't know who the fuck I was because my my life four years of it was rehab. That was that was my life. At it's 22, getting better. At twenty two, most people don't know who they are. Yeah, let alone someone who's been in this strangely insulated, isolated, very unique, very difficult to um, compare with anyone else's experience situation. Yeah, and then you come out, and then you got to try and reintegrate. Yeah, then you have to imagine this too. You know. You have a purpose. Military, you have a purpose. Deployed, you have a purpose. Even injury, you have a purpose. I'm getting better. When you lose all of those purposes and you're on to the next one, that's when you're like, oh, fuck, what what do I do now? I've got to go to this lecture. I've got to like... And I'll tell you what, I just didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know who I was going to become. So how old old are we now? At that point, what was I? I got hit at 21, actually two weeks before my 21st birthday. And four years, so about 25, mid-20s. Yep. Um, yeah, so I, I had planned on doing 20 years in the military, so I had no idea, dude. I had no idea what I wanted to do, yeah. who I was going to be. I was trying to find a life now. Started going to school for finance, uh, and I ended up rushing a fraternity because I, that I spent two weeks there so unhappy, so miserably unhappy and alone uh, in dealing with this new onset PTSD that... I was either about to go home or just like, I didn't, I didn't know. I was out of options. And yep. so I ended up rushing a fraternity, uh, which was both good and bad. Obviously, you know, I made friends and it gave me that social aspect, but it's not a good environment for a veteran dealing with PTSD to be around alcohol and drugs and yep. partying nonstop. Yep. Okay. And so my life kind of unraveled at that point a little bit. Um, and and I got to a point, I had spent a year there and I said, I got I to gotta get out of here. I'm regressing. Like yep. I'm not doing, I'm not. I'm not becoming a better human being. Yeah. And so I should have decided to move to Florida. And yeah. again, one of the worst years of my life, the first year there, just because I knew no one. What were you doing there? Um, in Florida? Yeah. Uh, I, well, I started school back down there too. Oh, okay. Um, but then I also, at that time, I was traveling about two to three weekends a month for this nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a group of amputee, combat amputees who play softball. Okay. So that, that was really big for me. And that's actually the foundation of vet sports, right? Okay. So... I was on that team, played ball for a year, really enjoyed it, gave me some purpose, and I was with those guys, which meant a lot, but the, the, the guy that led it was a rat fuck, and he, like, stole money from the organization, shit like that, okay. and he was using the guys, so I, I, I got out of that, and how Vet Sports started from that was because I was like, I want to do this the right, right. way. 
Um, so yeah, the first year in Florida, you know, I was traveling with that team and going to school, but knew no one and, you know, no resources in the community. There was just nothing, nothing. I, and support structures, just not that. And I think for me, the main thing I needed was just veterans, man, like other, other military people, just people that could understand me. And, um, so vet sports was started in 2012. That was my second year in Florida. Okay. I lucked out, um, had a mutual friend uh, of another combat wounded veteran and had a combat wounded buddy of mine. And all three of us had really bad transitions and realized that, yeah, while the military medical center uh, community has all this support, once yeah. you get to the normal civilian community, there's none. It, is it a little bit black and white? Absolutely. Okay. It's fucking night and day. It's As opposed insane. to this general ramp that sort of slows yep. you back in. So what does, if you can try and define what PTSD feels like, can you try and define it? Can you verbalize it? <laughs> The only thing I can say, I, I did this pretty extensive therapy called art therapy. Um, art therapy. Art therapy. So it's not art art. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's 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 accelerated resolution therapy or something. Okay. It's pretty much based on eye movement. So a lot of it is internal. You think about a lot of stuff and you follow their hand with your eyes because it allows you to kind of process the thoughts better. Brilliant fucking surgery. Uh, brilliant therapy. Um, and what they. What they said was when we go through traumatic events, we don't even mean to do this, but every event thereafter runs through this filter, a filter of that event. So you view and experience things through that filter because it's there. It's this block in your head. And so you can't enjoy things like normal. You can't, you, you don't feel compassion and the normal feelings that other people have. You're just kind of void of it all because everything is being viewed through those filters. And that therapy, they pretty much, their whole thing is they break down those filters. Try to remove the lens. So that you can view everything with a fresh perspective. Okay. Um, but it's tough. So it's PTSD is just, it's all encompassing, man. It's, it's always there. And it's just so is, some, it, is it like if someone's had anxiety, does it feel like anxiety? A lot. So that's the thing about PTSD too is it manifests itself differently for everybody. Some okay. people have nightmares. You know, I have nightmares all the time too. That's that's part of PTSD. Okay. Some people can't do crowds. I, I'm all right with crowds. It makes me uncomfortable. I was worse back in the day. Mm. You do some exposure therapy and you get over it. But it, there's a lot of different. That's why it's hard to explain exactly what it is. Um, that's, it's just that's such a. It's such a um, a ruthless affliction that the fact that it's almost bringing back your your first weaknesses so there's a, a, a really interesting story from King Arthur the knight to the round table and they've got to go off they've got to look for the dragon right they've yeah. got to go slay the dragon and each of the knights has to enter the forest at the point which looks darkest to him <laughs> so each of them they don't go in on one path yeah. each of them has to walk around the forest until they find the point at which it looks darkest to him. And that's what that feels like to me. That's that feels like someone who it, it, it brings up like it find it's capable of manifesting your weakness. Mm -hmm. Like it's the kryptonite what your kryptonite, Absolutely. but it's not everyone else's. So it's yeah, Absolutely. I mean the, the So the, you're, that's a brilliant way to put it actually. I love that because um, it's true. So my some of my flaws my whole life has been self-hatred and anxiety. And the PTSD takes both of those and fucking ramps them up, jacks them up, Turns to, it up 11. to eleven. Yeah. And um, so I, I, you know, alcoholism, drugs. I mean, I was in it all. Um, I just needed to. I had to cope somehow. I had to just erase it and numb the feelings. A lot of that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where um, you have to turn these emotions off for so freaking long and utilize only the the really bad ones that you really shouldn't. Mm -hmm. 
that when you come back, you don't, it's not a switch. You yeah. can't just switch them back on. So yeah. I, I had to learn over years and years. Did to, you ever find yourself like feeling aggressive again? Oh yeah, dude. I, my, and uh, West Virginia was big on this, but my fighting during my early twenties, like mm-hmm. mid to uh, like even later twenties was ridiculous. Dude. Really? Just didn't, I was in didn't bar fights. That, didn't have that red, all red, red nope. filter at all. Okay. Nope. Yeah. I, uh, I would get drunk, fight all the time. Just flip out. Um, and so the art therapy, as I was saying, I did that about four years ago and it changed me. It allowed me to feel those feelings again. It really brought all the emotions to the forefront. So you're following the hand and are you being talked through? You're being talked through. You're kind of prompted, but a lot of it is thought prompts. Okay. So I actually, in one of my books, uh, 30 Days, I, I discuss it a lot because it did mean a lot to me and I wanted people to know about it. But yep. um, So if anyone's interested. But yeah, it's it's very much you're in your own head and you're thinking about it. And one of the things they do at the end of everyone is, so my childhood stuff was yep. a very big basis of that. And it, I'd say it, it it really helped me a lot with my childhood stuff, about 10 times more than my military stuff. My military stuff has very much been like this year, year, year long battle, years long battle. Yeah. Where it, And the child stuff too, but... That it was like life changing. So, do you think? Do you think that mentally you're in a better position now, having gone through the art therapy and started to move through the PTSD with dealing with what happened before you were deployed as well? So, I think, I think the art therapy getting me through that childhood shit yep. allowed me to then go and battle the PTSD. Uh, I was like, I was stuck. So was it kind of like you had to get, okay, I've got to get through the first 16 Mm -hmm. years of life and deal with that stuff before I can actually, so you've got PTSD on PTSD. I do. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what it is. PTSD squared. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. And it's a really tricky thing to fucking figure out. Where do we start? Where do you fucking start? So I I ended up luckily, uh, Oh, I was getting long ass way there. The end of every art therapy session, you envision yourself as a child, you know, if, if you have childhood issues. Yeah. And you're holding your child, you, by the hand, and you're walking him across the bridge. The negativity is on this side. The positivity is on this side. And you walk him across this bridge, and you see a fire, a big bonfire. And you stand next to that bonfire, and you start throwing all that negative shit in, right? And then you look down at your younger self, and they actually ask you, what would you tell your younger you? And I think I said, um, believe in yourself. Don't let other people dictate how you feel. And she said, okay, good. Say that to yourself in your head and then let younger you start throwing stuff in the fire too. And it sounds fucking weird and hokey, man. And the first time I did, I felt weird, but I got to fucking tell you, dude, dude, just existing in that, it changed me, man. It changed me. It was a very powerful thing. And I think obviously it had to do with the whole session, the session as a whole and then ending it with that. Mm. But yeah, there was something significant about that. Did you find it? So for some of the listeners will be practicing meditation at the moment and some of the practices that you go through on that can be... They can be difficult in the same way that picking up a heavy weight's difficult, but it's mental, yeah. right? And did you find it testing to be able to start visualizing that sort of stuff? Because it's a very specific way of thinking, right? Absolutely. It's a, a, an incredibly uh, unique skill. In the same way as being able to do a snatch is a very specific mental, uh, physical skill. You're being asked to do something which is very, very fine and discreet. Mentally, yeah. Did you find? Did you have to cultivate it over time? Did you have a? a yeah, certainly. But the thing about art therapy too is that it's very quick. It's, it's accelerated resolution therapy. Called that for a reason. It's very. It works quickly. So yeah, the first session, first few sessions, you're like, okay, you it takes some time. But yeah, but you, you also, in order for that to work, you have to be open to it. You have to. 
If you go in there thinking, oh, this is fucking hokey bullshit, yeah. it's not going to work. Yeah. So yeah, even though I in my head, I'm like, okay, whatever. Hmm. And when I went in there, I said every time, I said, you're going to fucking Commit do this, it. and you're going to be open-minded, and you're going to... I mean, look at, you know, to go back to the decision to lose the limb. Yeah. Like, you know, you had done your research, you'd read through, and then you go, I'm going to go for this. Like, this is all or nothing. Yeah. And, you know, 100% commitment, I think, is there must be a lot of people who have maybe gone to do art therapy and have had that doubt in the back of their mind and then they haven't elicited that same result that you did. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, so Which, uh, it's unfortunate because it really, it was, it was fantastic. It was incredible. So is that the basis of your recovery? Yeah, because I, like I said, I think it knocked out that childhood PTSD. You okay. know, it, it allowed me to move past that. Okay. And, and then did you, and, so did you find kind of like um, eating layers of a cake? Did you find different sensations and different tastes as you moved through the layers? So Did I talk, you, it's like a floodgates had been opened, right? Okay. So where I never felt love or happiness or joy or anything like that in the years prior, I felt them like on an infinite level <laughs> afterward. It was weird. So like, was it, I'd over, was it overwhelming? The, yes, but in a kind of a beautiful way because um, I was feeling again. And so, like, one of the things is, uh, it's so ridiculous, but, like, I'll watch uh, a YouTube episode of um, uh, The Voice or something, and yep. you'll have somebody who's, like, maybe they're meek, or they had some terrible childhood, and they go in there, fucking just kill it. Yeah. I cry on you that shit weeping. now. Yeah. I weep like a fucking baby. That would have never happened back in the day, ever. Yeah. And that was one of the big things. I just feel more. You can find meaning in things. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, it was huge. It was, it was significant. So, you've gone through the art therapy. Um What's next after that? Well, so the art therapy and vet sports started about the same time. So I also found my purpose again at that point. So you know, tell me, tell me about vet sports. It's what I want to get onto. So vet sports again, the bad, the shit transition, right? You know, it, we, I, and then that bad organization. It, I was like, you know, I know that this works. Bringing veterans together, mm-hmm. I know this works, and mm-hmm. having some sort of active activity. Yep. But. And what if we did it the right way? Not only that, what if we provided it within the communities where people are returning to? I mean, they're transitioning to these communities. How cool would it be to have a little club there? So, like I said, the three of us came up with the idea of having the community-based clubs that revolve around sports, athletic events, um, community involvement. We, we, we help other charities as well through donating our time. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, get-togethers, events, just bringing them together, social events. And so we started Vet Sports. Our first club was in D.C., and then I started one down in Tampa, which is funny. You know, like I didn't have any friends up there at that time, right? Yeah. I made all my friends in Florida from Vet Sports. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was growing and really becoming something. And so I had that new purpose. You know, I was still battling. Absolutely. I still battle this day. That shit never goes away. But, it, like, you, you know, it's just progress. Yeah. It's progress. Even little progress is, is huge when you go through that kind of life. And, uh, so what's and, the what's the process of starting a sporting organization for veterans? Like, what do you how do you find them? Well, lots of recruiting, a lot of re- recruiting methods. VA, uh, student veteran organizations. Um, yeah, I had to learn all this. That's a, that was kind of the funny thing. You know, it was a lot of pressure, and it definitely um, in their, those early years. Yeah, because I have a lot of self hatred and self doubt, stuff like that. Um, it was tough because it's I was a big old task, right? Yeah, because you really, you know, can I do this? You know, is it worthy? Is it worth it? Should it be me? Should Should it it be be someone else? Yeah. So, yeah, you you end up, I had to learn it all. And, uh, and, but we we did it. I mean, we have, we recruited through colleges and VAs and other nonprofits. And, uh, it's just, 
it's been cool, man. What are the sports that you guys... Anything. So we, we really, we at the end of the day, we want to know what they want to do. Yeah. So if you have a club, say we have a club in East Texas and you want to do some skeet shooting, then they do skeet shooting. Yeah. Whereas in California, if your crew wants to do surfing, then we do surfing. You know, it's all dependent on the, or, the area and what the need is. Okay. But we like to keep it mixed. You know, we do softballs, you know, kickball, skeet shooting. There you know. it is again. Um, the, everything. We do everything. Yeah. Um, we, we definitely focus more on team sports aspect of it. There's a lot of nonprofits out there that are helping and doing good stuff. We believe in the team sports aspect of it because it, it kind of gives you that new goal. Yeah, it brings right. you together. That allows you to work together again. Part of a team is big military thing, obviously, so it gives you that feeling again. Does and it feel a little bit like a brotherhood again? It is a brotherhood, absolutely. Any guy in vet sports will tell you that vet sports is, is a brotherhood. I hate saying brotherhood because it's a sisterhood as well, but it's a family. Yeah. It is an absolute family, and that's what we wanted it to be. We didn't start out wanting to be a big, or, you know, an organization where you can't reach out to the founder and say, hey, it's tell like me you. about vet sports. Yeah. So how many locations are you in? So shit, that's I'm, I'm like I took a step back this year, right? So yeah. like all this shit's happening now. It's like I've sent my kid off to college, right? Yeah, you know, I did all the things I needed like, to does do. Does it feel like it's its own monster? Now it is. No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm like, it just runs. It's its own animal. Yeah, it does its own thing. Randy Tharp is our president, um, and he's a fantastic. He's another combat wounded veteran who co-founded it with me, and uh, an incredible human being. And uh, he is absolutely. The reason Vest Sports is where it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've done my part and uh, I've done everything that I can to bring it to where it is. But uh, Randy, especially with this new growth, uh, it goes to him. I mean, uh, we're, we're in a lot of places. So just to try to name them all, Michigan, uh, Colleen, Texas, Jacksonville, uh, the Panhandle, T- Tampa. Uh, we just did one in Norfolk. Um, Fort, uh, hold on. Can't even fucking remember it. Two up in Michigan, DC, um, Westchester, New York. Uh, they're everywhere, man. So you're New talking, Mexico. You're talking hundreds of people. Yeah. Oh, hundreds, thousands, thousands. Thousands of veterans. Yeah. yeah. It it blows my mind. To do you have see. any? Do you have any idea how many people have been a, a like from start to finish have been a member of Vet Sports? Like, if you were to put, a, I don't have a specific number, but thousands, absolutely wow. thousands. Yeah. And the effect that it's had on reintegration and all the rest of it is probably going to be pretty profound. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think the proof is in the pudding for sure. But from what I've seen, um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've it's been beautiful, man. We've seen a lot of people who were in the exact state I was in mm-hmm. who just come out slowly. But surely it's funny. It's a process. One of my best friends now is actually one of these guys who just showed up one day. And it's like this timid, like he watches first. You know, mm-hmm. doesn't really talk to anybody and just checks it out. And then the next week they come and maybe they talk to a few people. And mm-hmm. the next week they're like, Hey, can I get a uniform? You know, it's like they build to this point and then like like my best friend now, yeah. he I see it in him. Yeah. The change. And I don't know where some of those guys would be now if it weren't for it, which is a good feeling to have. It must be incredibly empowering. Yeah. You know, to take your experience and then also your passion, which was sports, and somehow create something that's meaning and puts people on a different trajectory and Yeah. Yeah, at that's, the end of the day, that's what that's our ultimate goal. Is I, to, have you guys still got the? It's kind of like the baseball logo, but it's with the artificial like sports leg. Is that do you know like the silhouette? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Is that still yep. your emblem? That's mine. Yeah, I'll yeah. make sure it's in the show notes. If anyone who's just listening needs to check this out because it is so fucking cool. Yeah, I love that thing. It's so cool. Is that who is that? That's me. Is that you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're like halfway through the swing yep. of the baseball bat, but you can see the... The, the back leg is a prosthetic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's cool. The kangaroo kind of yeah, yeah. arched foot. Man, that's it's just sick. 
I think it, I, when I first first ever saw that, I was like, that I love it. I just love the branding. I thought I, I thought it was really really good. Um, so Vet Sports now is purely US based. Are you aware of any um, organizations which are similar elsewhere in the world? We aren't. No, um, and and international. Obviously, I'm. I have taken a step back, so I'm not going to make these decisions so much anymore. I'll probably put them out there and yeah. see what. But I, I would love to go international at one point, like mm-hmm. a UK Vet Sports Club for me to have. Easy they tra- fought easy beside transition. us, man. Yeah. They they fought. You guys fought behind beside us. Canada, Italy. There's so many people that I saw there that contributed, and a lot of them don't get the same benefits that we do. A lot mm. of them don't get the same treatment. I was going to say. So if you were if you were to look at, you've said that reintegrating into normal society, there's maybe some work to be done there. But you sung the praises of the immediate reintegration and of absolutely. Care. What are your impressions of that in other countries? Do you think America leads the way with that? Absolutely, by by a really big margin. Yep. Okay. Yep. I know. I know some UK guys who lost limbs overseas who are not taken care of in the way they should be. Germany is terrible. Really. Well, unfortunately, due to their past, they view their military with distaste, disgust. Yeah. And when they get injured, they're just they're left. Man, that's terrible. Defenseless, pretty much. That's terrible. So, yeah, I mean, international for me, obviously, we have a long way to go. We're, we're a very small organization, completely mm-hmm. grassroots. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 20 years from now, if there's Vet Sports UK, Vet mm-hmm. Sports Canada, I'd be the happiest motherfucker on earth. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, you found some meaning with that, and then you started writing. So, that's another side <laughs> of the fucking story, man. Um, and it's so weird. Hold on, real quick. Uh, can you tell him that, what time is it now? It's 5 to 1. Yeah, can you tell? I mean, it's probably going to be another 20. I sent Rob down to meet him. Okay. Um, ask again? Oh, yeah. So, the writing. <laughs> tell me about the writing. So, here's the thing. I've always been a writer. I've always loved it. I've always loved reading. I've always Which is a surprising, you know, like, army guy, yeah. you know, like, hyper-masculine, all that stuff. But then you, you've you got this other side. See, this but I grew up weirdly writing. creative side. I know. It's, it's, I grew up writing lyrics. Dude, fifth grade, fourth grade, I was writing lyrics, and I was I was playing music and shit, you know, horrible music. But, like, that, <laughs> it was. I was always the creative type. I'd always felt empowered by utilizing the written word to feel something. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always been a reader. R.L. Stein, Stephen King, I grew up on that shit, and I would devour those books. Yeah. And so I always loved it. I didn't write when I was in the military. I lost I lost my passion for writing when I was in the military and when I was healing up. Yeah. And uh, I had to kind of discover that passion again. So I'm in, I'm taking finance in school. Yeah. PTSD's fucking shit. Yeah. I'm down in Florida first year in Florida this time. Yeah. PTSD's rough. I'm miserable, man, and I hate my classes. I'm going to classes every day and I'm I hate it. Yeah. And I'm like it's not it's not uh, stimulating you no. know, intellectually. So I'm like, bro, what are you doing? You're medically retired. You have an organization that you know you founded and you, you care about that's giving you purpose. Why are you not chasing it? Like, why are you not doing what makes you happy? Yeah. And so I switched my major right then and there to creative writing. Okay. And just with the hopes that someday I'd maybe get an opportunity. At that time, I thought maybe I'd try to do some like script writing contests, screenplay c- contests, and see where it took me. Mm-hmm. A year into my creative writing, after I'd switched it, um, I got reached out to by Michael Stokes. Michael Stokes is a pretty renowned photographer who one of his campaigns or one of his uh, passion projects was shooting combat wounded amputees but male form so very like um, masculine sexy photos but yeah. probably with prosthetics in them yeah it was it was kind of to take away from the process it was they're beautiful photos and when i first saw two guys did it before i did mm-hmm. and i saw those about a year before michael reached out to me and i was just like just moved Fuck, that's cool. yes yeah. 
And and I, I was like, man, I'd love to do that, but never thought I could. Yeah. Next thing you know, fast forward a year, and I, I go into my Facebook Messenger, and it says Michael Stokes, and I'm like, shit. I open the message, man, and he he invited me to come shoot, and I was just dancing Lovely. around the hotel room. Yeah, yeah. I said, fuck you yeah. You prepped for quite a while for that. I, right? So he hit me up. I think it was July, and uh, I shot in December. And we were supposed to, I think I was supposed to shoot in, in October. This is the first and only time in my life where I was like, I ate everything I was supposed to. I yeah. trained Tracked my the ass off. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And I look fucking fantastic. The photos are unbelievable. They'll be in the show notes. But, but yeah, it was five, it was five months of that. And, uh, I hated my, I hated everything about my life. <laughs> I, I fucking hated well, it. Well, man, do you know what it is? It doesn't matter whether you've been to war or not. No one likes dieting. No. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. No one wants to be on a Terrible. diet. So, um, yeah, so I ended up uh, doing that shoot, and then I, he's real big in the romance community, a lot of fans in that, so I started getting traction in the romance community, and had no, like you were talking about it last night, about, like, you had no idea this world existed, I just got thrown into you it, opened, man. You opened Pandora's box, man, with this, with the romance But it was beautiful, it's a, yeah, yeah, like yeah, you said yesterday, it's a fantastic community that you just, nobody really, not a lot of people know about, yeah. so yeah, I... I, I Tumbled down the rabbit hole. Tumbled down that rabbit hole, got my first couple covers, and then I had a website at that time, yeah. um, and I had some of my short stories on there. And uh, an author who had published two books read my short stories, really liked them, and had a military romance storyline that she didn't think she could give just do justice to. Okay. Reached out to me, asked me if I'd like to co-write it with her. How how daunting was that? Fucking terribly daunting. Was that is that up there with like? Forget vet sports. Forget having to oh, lose yeah. a leg. Like I got to write a book. Absolutely. Like, fuck this yeah. is scary. Toughest mental task I've ever done in my life. Even tougher <laughs> than war. Um, yes, that it was definitely afraid. And I will say this: it's if I didn't have a co-writer or co-author that yeah. kind of walked me through, mm. um, I don't know how long it would have been before I tried even to write a book. Even being in the romance community as a model, yeah. I don't know how long it would have taken there's me not many, because it's daunting. I don't think there's very many um, guys that make that transition. Right? It must be difficult to be both a cover model. And an author. Well, unfortunately, a lot of guys have been, and but it's uh, successful. Well, no, I'm, uh, for me, I, I I was a writer before I was a model, man. Yeah. I, I am a writer through and fucking. Through. I just happen to model as well. I just happen to model as well. Whereas yeah. there are some that go from cover model to writer for money's sake yeah. because they see that oh, they I've can got make money on this side, and that disgusts me. And so I, I actually, for years, like pretty much my whole career until about a year ago, I had to fight that battle that. Um, Kind of that label. Mm. I was labeled the model turned writer, and I'm like, guys, no, I was going. To, yeah, I was going to school for writing before I ever took a photo. Stood in front of a camera, and so yeah, it, I finally now I'm at the point where I think people see me or see my name or 100%. hear about me, and it's writer. 100%. It's not. Yeah. It's writer model, writer slash model, not model slash writer. Yeah, which is cool. That's an important distinction, I guess. When you want absolutely your work, when you want your work to be viewed with artistic integrity. Yep, you need to make sure that that's um, that that's the way that it's done. So you, how many books have you published now? So I've got two co-written books out. Uh, I'm working on my third co-written one now, and then I've got uh, one, two, three, four, four solo books. Wow! And, and then you got on... your super secret one. That, that's the co-written one. The co-written yeah. one that's yeah. super secret, and no one's going to get to find out what that is. It's going to be last minute. Yeah, I'm hoping to come out with that one about September-ish, August. Okay. And, or, no, about September. And um, yeah, pretty much I'm just going to drop it. Are you like, for that? Oh, I'm so pumped, dude. And it's <laughs> it, not only that, but the story itself has been very... Writing's so difficult, man. It really is. Writer's block's a very real thing. So there's times I'll sit there and nothing will come out or it'll be really clunky and just yeah, doesn't flow. But this one, it's just like straight from my brain to my Amazing. fingertips. So uh, I'm really excited to get it out there. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's 
it's such a an interesting story, and this is one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on to just hear the arc of so many different things. But I think you know, if you were to try and uh, if you to try and work out a consistent narrative of what's happened throughout what you've been doing, it's been a commitment to decisions. Mm. It seems it's that mm. I'm going to do something, and it's a full dick and balls, like the full length. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to go for it. Yeah, and you know, like. I'm going to decide to lose a leg. I'm going to decide to move out and go to school. I'm also going to decide to go to a different one. You know, for me, certainly I, I can pontificate about a decision f- like which fucking yogurt to have for five minutes yeah. in, the, in the supermarket, right? And like, you know, that that ability to, that foresight and that ability to choose, I think is is really, really important because the, there must be so many people, so many veterans and, and other people in life that they just waver but in this sort of gray area between two things and that's where nothing gets done right yeah it's actually pretty interesting man because you know i like i said self-doubt self-hatred are things that i battle uh, significantly or yeah self-doubt but so the self-doubt is in terms of my work so like doubting my abilities and doubting my storylines mm-hmm. and doubting that mm-hmm. but when it comes to decision making man my whole life it's been <laughs> i make that decision and there's no fucking looking back would you be prepared to outsource decision making like if i need some decisions doing absolutely bro yeah no 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 you want to get you want to get the blackberry yogurt and you want to go for the yeah the yeah. smoothie i'll Fine. be a professional decision, decision maker. maker i think that you could be um, but yeah, but I, I don't like living in that world of like, what if, right? The what if sucks, man, because you can't, you can't, it doesn't like me. I'm, I, I desperately wanted to play college ball, man. I even tried out for uh university of Tampa after losing my leg mm-hmm. and uh, did well, but not good enough. Yep. Always been a dream of mine. And it's something that I do, you know, I think about, I'm like, man, it would have been nice to have that life, but what, what the fuck can I do about it now, man? Yeah. I can't go back in time. I can't do anything about it. So I, I hate living in that world of what if. It, it just does me no good. And, and really my anxiety it drives it through the roof. So mm-hmm. I've learned, yeah, when it comes to big decision life, decision making, it's like, for one, put a lot of time and research into it. Make sure you make a solid decision. Two, when you make that fucking decision, stick with it. Commit to it. Commit to it. Fully. Man, mm-hmm. I think that's, it's such a, lovely, um, such a lovely sentiment to have. And when you think, you know, hopefully some of the people that are listening... It's, I think it's very easy. It's the rhetoric of look at how hard someone else's life is. Look at how much someone's been through. But their life's completely different to mine. But when it comes to stuff like decision-making and committing to your values and, and moving forward and doing what it is that you want to do, because I think a lot of the time people people know what it is that they want. They just don't have the bravery to pursue it. Really- or they're so worried about all the possible outcomes, right? Like it's it's... That that's where people get caught, I think, is because they're just they know what they want to do, but they're so like stuck in the future what ifs yeah. that they can't make that decision because they're like, well, well, what if that happens? What if it happens? Or this could happen? Or this could happen? It's like, well, yeah, okay, yeah, it might do. But that's it's the leg, and maybe honestly, that leg probably that <laughs> probably that leg decision was what led me to where I am now because that was one where, I mean. The what ifs for that are significant. I mean, you can get an infection. I was going to say, how many, how many things can go wrong? A lot of things can go wrong. You know, I could have ended up worse, very much so. But the thing is, I did enough research. I put enough time in, talked to enough other amputees where I said, I think I have a great chance of being fine here. I know in my heart of hearts that I have the work ethic to, to get there. So fuck, let's fucking do this. Whereas, you know, if that in that decision, if I was like kind of wish, wish, wishy washy. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? Yeah. 
I would probably have been in limbo for another two years until I finally decided to cut it off, you know? Mm. So, yeah, that probably was the first decision. That, that, that was the, the... And that's the, so the deck of cards just starts yeah. to fall from there, right? Once you have, once you make the decision to cut off your own leg, like every decision I mean, after be- that is pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and on that note, let's finish it there. Can you tell the listeners where they can find you online and where they can get after your books and stuff? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, btrella.com is where you BT- can... U-R-R-U-E-L-A dot com. Yep. Yep. Uh, you can find all my covers on there, uh, some of my short stories. Everything's kind of there. Vetsports.org for anything Vetsports related. We have everything in, uh, up on there, uh, ways to help, uh, more about who we are and what we do. Uh, and then Facebook, obviously, BTRello on Facebook. Uh, BT's Book Battalion uh, is where we talk all things book-related. Book and, uh, yeah, Twitter, at BTU Army. I mean, they're all out there. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate your time. So hey, much. thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate Cheers, you, bro. Bye bye.